The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox. Uh, we are live in Westminster and you've also got Jeff Cutmore in the studio covering the markets. And these are your headlines. So the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has just about survived a confidence vote, but his leadership is rocked after more than 40% of his own MPs vote to remove him from office. If you look at what's ha- just happened in, uh, in Parliament, whatever statistics you want to chuck around, I've got many more MPs supporting me now uh, than I did in 2019. I'm happy with that. We're going to bash on. Uh, we have a huge agenda and we're going to get it done. A pickup for shares in Didi Chuxing up almost 25% amid a report that Chinese authorities may allow the ride-hailing company's app back into domestic app stores. Elon Musk threatens to walk away from his $44 billion deal to buy the social media platform unless the group provides more information on fake accounts. And the Australian dollar spikes as the central bank lifts rates by a bigger-than-expected 50 basis points. That's the largest single-rate hike since the start of the century and the first move since 2013. Good evening. Uh, I can report as returning officer uh, that 359 ballots were cast, no spoiled ballots, that the vote in favour of having confidence in Boris Johnson as leader was 211 votes, and the vote against was 148 votes. And therefore, I can announce that the Parliamentary Party does have confidence. Well, that was the chairman of the Conservative backbench 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady. Now, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has survived a confidence vote, winning support from 211 MPs, while 148 lawmakers expressed no confidence in his premiership. But the Prime Minister, although he may seem safe now from another challenge for a period of 12 months, will continue to face fresh tests of his authority and his popularity. Of course, we have an upcoming local by-election on June the 23rd. Despite the damaging numbers, Johnson remained positive on the result, telling reporters the party could now move on from previous scandals. I certainly think it is, because don't forget that, uh, you know, when I first stood to be uh, leader of the Conservative Party in 2019, I didn't get anything like uh, that much uh, support from my, my colleagues in, in Parliament. Uh, we're, we're, we're building that. And uh, what we have now is an opportunity to put behind us all the stuff, as I say, that uh, people in the media like going on about. And it, I think the, the, there's a difference in, in the category of conversation. I know, you know people want to talk about stuff that goes on at, at Westminster. What I want to talk about is what we as a government are, are doing so to help people. Though, and no, what we're going to do now is take the opportunity 
to unite and deliver. And that is and that's what we want to do. Well, Boris Johnson trying to get on top of his brief here after what I think largely will be seen as disappointing numbers by his supporters. What does the market think? Well, it was very interesting yesterday as Steve and I sat around this desk and we talked about the news that there would be this confidence vote that largely we saw the pound, we saw um, the equity markets, we saw support for UK assets strengthen through the session. Now, was that about the politics or was it about the fact that we had a largely positive day for risk assets yesterday? If the pound is any measure of confidence in Boris Johnson's future, well, let's tell you it's weakening a little bit this morning once again against the greenback, which, Steve, perhaps suggests that the markets believe that Boris Johnson is certainly not out of the woods yet on this leadership campaign. Morning, Jeff. Yeah, I think a lot of what we pontificated about yesterday has actually come spot on true. Uh, just a quick word on the pound. If the pound is a measure of the confidence in the uh, uh, policies uh, of Boris Johnson in a post-Brexit world, of course, he is the poster child uh, of Brexit, then why aren't we trading 145, 150, which is where we were before the Brexit vote? Why is the pound trading dramatically lower against all currencies over that period? So just a marker there on the longer term picture of the pound uh, on the back of Boris Johnson's policies. Now, look, I, I think I said to you yesterday, and you and I and Ian King, our colleague from Sky, were having a long conversation about if he won the vote, was he safe? And I, I personally felt at the time and still feel very, very strongly that he isn't safe as well. And actually, there are enormous challenges ahead. The scale of the revolt was absolutely enormous uh, compared to what many people expected. You've got to remember, up until a couple of days ago, there were only 27 to 29 uh, letters that went into Sir Graham Brady, the head uh, of the 1922 committee, calling for uh, a no-confidence vote calling for the resignation of the Prime Minister. That leapfrogged after the Jubilee weekend to 54 and then metamorphosized into 148 MPs, 40% plus of the parliamentary party. And of the MPs who aren't aligned to the government, an enormous percentage. You've got to remember the 211 votes that Boris Johnson got include over 160 members of parliament who are part of the government, who are everything from a PPS, a bag carrier, up until the Foreign Secretary and other key allies as well. So of the free aligned uh, MPs within the Conservative Party, it is an enormous scale of revolt. And I just want to also put this in context compared with other revolts over the years, the ones against Margaret Thatcher and the ones against Theresa May. It wasn't a cabal of people against the poll tax as far as Thatcher was concerned in 1989-1990. It wasn't uh, against Theresa May's stewardship of getting through a deal with Europe uh, over Brexit and the fact that she wasn't a Brexiteer as well. It was a cross-party support for moving uh, on from Boris Johnson from all kinds of echelons, from newbies to old hands to Brexiteers to those who uh, previously would have been One Nation Tories as well and still are in many cases as well. So an enormous revolt as well. Uh, And as you quite rightly said, there are big, big challenges ahead as well, uh, including the fact that we've got these by-elections on the 23rd of June, of which and Boris Johnson will say, well, uh, sitting parties always lose seats uh, during the midterm as well. But these are very key seats. One of them, Wakefield, which it seems that the Tories think they've already potentially lost as well, it was one of these red wall seats that they won in 2019 and a real barometer for the appetite in that middle ground uh, for the Conservatives going forward. The other top one, which is Tiverton and Huntington as well, is absolutely a key seat. If the Tories lose this to probably the Liberal Democrats as well, if indeed that were to be the case, they would have lost a majority of over 24 
8,000, a rock-solid seat that in one way or other has been conservative for a century, moving to the Liberal Democrats. That is a terrible barometer uh, for Boris Johnson going forward. Then the other challenge comes in the fact that uh, this is going to hang around, despite the fact he said in that sound you, you played earlier, he wants to move on and talk about national issues. Well, the Commons Privileges Committee is going to be investigating whether he lied to Parliament over uh, the Sue Gray report, lied to Parliament over the parties held at Downing Street. And that won't be finished until it's, uh, it's uh, procrastination, uh, until the autumn, probably October. And then Boris Johnson's got to work out if he does survive both of those events as well, if and when he has a general election. Uh, and that, of course, has to be called uh, by late 2024, early 2025 as well. So the challenges ahead for Boris Johnson are absolutely enormous. Just a quick word on the voting last night. And I was looking at the Machiavellian side of Conservative Party politics, the febrile side as well, because some people are saying, well, actually, some Johnson allies may well have brought forward uh, this no confidence vote because they brought it forward ahead of those by-elections so that actually he could win this in a very short time period of time. Uh, others were saying, actually, what may well have happened is a lot of people who publicly said we're going to back Boris Johnson, even some government members may well have voted against him because it was a secret ballot. And actually, it's all been shredded now, so no one will ever know how they actually voted. So there's all kinds of things going on at the moment as well. But Boris Johnson is categorically not out of the woods. The history from 1989-1990 with Margaret Thatcher, where she won against Sir Anthony Meyer, who was a stalking horse, and then she won the first round vote in a leadership contest against Michael Hesselsheim. She shortly thereafter had to resign. And in 2018 and 2019, when Theresa May won a confidence vote by a greater margin, I hasten to add, 200 votes to 217 than Boris Johnson won last night, she was gone within six months. I was standing there and her very tearful goodbye speech when she was on the lectern on a very sunny day outside Downing Street as well. So the history for a man who knows his history very well, knows his Conservative Party history very, very well, it doesn't look good for him. Steve, a couple of flashes this morning uh, coming out of Downing Street. So let me just get to these for a moment. Um, Prime Minister Johnson vowing to continue delivering on what matters to the British public. Uh, The Prime Minister will address the Cabinet on Tuesday. Johnson will call for progress in easing the cost of living, uh, improving health care and policing and uniting the country. Prime Minister Johnson will set out a new vision to the Cabinet, including measures to reduce childcare costs for parents and a renewed drive to get more people onto the housing ladder. Just reflecting on on your history lesson for us, Steve, um, I think it was very notable when Margaret Thatcher went through the first challenge, the request was change your policies, change your cabinet. And she did neither. And then ultimately she fell to Michael Heseltine's challenge. When it came to Theresa May, she was perceived as unable to get Brexit done. When it comes to Boris Johnson, is it actually about changing policies or is it about Johnson's character? And if it's about his character, well, leopards don't change their spots, do they? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and look, gosh, you've you brought up some brilliant historical examples. Uh, how long have we got? We've got about three hours on this programme, so let me just start off as well. Let me go back a little bit further as well, because the original cost of living crisis when Margaret Thatcher came in, of course, as we mentioned yesterday on the show, was the fact that we had 14, 15% inflation uh, at the time of her challenging Ted Heath, who was the Prime Minister, of course, in the early 70s as well. And she took over that partly because of the economic crisis going on there as well. So spin forward that conversation to 2022. 20, uh, 
and it's very, very difficult for Boris Johnson when we have pretty much multi-decade high inflation, in fact, going back to the 70s, to him to fight this cost of living increase, uh, the cost of petrol, the cost of childcare, the cost of food, the cost of uh, heating, the cost of uh, education, you name it, across the board, it's gone through the roof. And it's only very piecemeal what Rishi Sunak can do with, let's be honest about it, Rishi Sunak, potential rival uh, to Boris Johnson, they've already thrown a vast amount of money at the economy as well. How much money is left at the moment of time when we've had rising interest rates and that would also put pressure on sovereign as well. Go back to the second example, the first example you made, the second historical analogy, 1989-1990. You've got to remember, Thatcher came in in 1979 and there was a feeling after she won the general election in 87 that actually she was going to retire after 10 years in the post and that's what got a lot of her cabinet very, very upset. The fact she carried on uh, and thought she could carry on a lot further despite all the concerns over Europe as well and all the concerns uh, over uh, the poll tax domestically. And I remember walking through Trafalgar Square with the poll tax riots going on all around me. I was actually going to the theatre that night, but it was quite extraordinary times as well. Again, febrile, the right kind of word. So Thatcher had economic problems and she had perhaps lost the confidence of her party. Now, up to your 2018-2019 example, which is uh, Theresa May. Theresa May had a much smaller majority. So actually, one thing is, if you put in confidence vote Theresa May into your search engine, you'll find that actually the official uh, confidence vote was in the tail end of 2018, but she faced vote after vote after vote in Parliament trying to get through uh, various parts of her Brexit proposals, and every single one of them became a confidence vote because she had such a tiny majority as well, and she had this hardcore of Brexiteers as well. What was it they called themselves? The European Research Group at the time, I think it was, ERG, uh, who were basically voting against Theresa May, who was a Remainer, not a Brexiteer. Every single time uh, she came up in Parliament as well. So she had a very succinct, and this is my point again, she had a very clear cabal against her then. But again, Boris Johnson doesn't have this one group of people against him. It's coming from across the party. So we've got the cost of living crisis that you mentioned, which is one of the issues which he's going to really struggle to uh, recover from. He's going to really struggle to move on uh, from the party gate lies issue as well, because of course the Parliamentary Commons Privilege Committee uh, is still looking into that as well. And there is the fact that if Redwall Tories and other Tories who thought they were in safe seats are now thinking, hang on, we are going to lose a seat. And some of the YouGov polling today and the Times polling today, fresh uh, off the uh, off the print, is true, then a vast number of Tories in the shires who have been the bedrock of supporters for Boris Johnson, they are losing their support for him as well. They are saying in, in great numbers now, more than they've ever done before, that Boris Johnson must resign or be forced from office as well. It's still debatable. I think Conservative Home, which is one set of polling, is still saying he holds the majority there as well. But many, many polls now uh, about the grassroots Conservative members and Conservative voters are saying they have real questions about his leadership. And if he loses them in the shires... And if he loses them in the party as well, how can Boris Johnson move forward with some of these ambitious policies at a time when actually, let's be honest about it, Rishi Sunak is not going to loosen the purse strings any more than he already has? No, absolutely. Steve, terrific. We'll we'll come back to you a a little bit later on. Thank you so much for that. And for more on Prime Minister Johnson's confidence vote victory, check out CNBC.com and stay with the channel if you want to know how financial markets are going to react to that outcome. Also on the programme, DD shares breathe a sigh of relief in New York as Chinese regulators reportedly look to end their probe into the group. We will have more on the story when we come back.
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. So most of the top of the programme this morning has been about the intrigue, the drama that we've seen in the United Kingdom over the premiership of Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But there's been a, a lot of activity away from the UK political scene as well. And that's been in the markets. We actually had uh, something of a bounce yesterday in the US session. But I have to tell you that the gains began to dissipate through the session as we headed towards the close. So we'll um, be interested to see what that actually means as we begin to negotiate the open here in the um, uh, European markets. And, and the, the, the reason I want to look at the Dow very briefly here, because I think it's a very good example of what we saw through the course of the session yesterday, and again, the intense volatility. Through the session, the Dow was actually up 300 points at one stage. By the time the closing bell rang, um, the Dow was only up about 16 points and we saw the S&P gain three-tenths of one percent and the Nasdaq just putting in a slightly better performance than the other major indices. I suspect part of the reason that we saw the gains ebbing away towards the end of the session was this. Let's just show you what's happened on the uh, Treasury curve here because <clears throat> we saw a spike up in yields across the curve and most notably the 10-year is back through 3% and the 5-year also above 3% here and the curve actually looking quite flat at this point with the 30-year only at 3.19% and isn't that remarkable as you look at these two numbers 3 spot 0491 3 spot 0492 it shows you just how flat the belly of the curve is and I think what that encouraged a lot of people to do yesterday is they saw the treasuries selling off and the yields rising. Again, maybe they just thought about whether they wanted to be in equities as the so-called uh, yield advantage uh, demonstrated by the uh, treasuries enticed maybe some of that money away from the equity markets and back into the uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Treasury notes effectively. And it is this seesaw that we're getting at the moment as we see central banks continue to focus on their interest rate strategy, strategy around inflation. And I want to have a look at the, at the dollar here because we had an RBA interest rate move, which again has made the FX market rethink its allocation and uh, contemplate where it actually wants to be located. And I should just focus on the uh, yen here because in the, in the back end of that RBA move, we actually saw the yen um, moving to fresh 2002 lows. So the dollar back in the driving seat in many senses as I think the RBA uh, 50 basis point move just got the FX market reflecting again on what is going to happen with regard to 
the um, uh, dollar, the, 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 the Federal Reserve, and ultimately uh, Christine Lagarde at the ECB, is she going to defy the hawks and sound more dovish as some of the European data has been weakening? Um, should we have a look at the Asian markets then? Just uh, see what legacy we get coming into the European trading session. And we've got a bit of a split decision here. The um, Australian market clearly reflecting some of the nerves around the central bank's decision to go with that bigger move on the interest rate hike. Elsewhere, the Shanghai Composite up two tenths of one percent. The Hong Kong market down seven tenths of one percent, and the Nikkei two two five as you can see here at 27,977. Um, the DD story is um, generating a lot of interest again in chi Chinese technology stocks. Is uh, DD Chuxing now off the naughty step? Is there a good argument for saying that there will be an opportunity to uh, re-enter Chinese technology stocks, um, if not now, soon, as the uh, government focuses more on growth and perhaps less on strict regulation. Uh, it's an open question, but I know there have been some banks out there that have said, oh, Chinese technology, uninvestable at the moment. Well, it didn't look like that yesterday when we saw the um, uh, excitement around the belief that some of the regulationary uh, crackdown is going to ease. So on a programming note, just to point out, our colleagues in Singapore will be hosting a special edition of Pro Talks this week. Tanvir will speak with the founder and managing partner of Pabre Investment Funds. That's on Wednesday at 5 a.m. CET. Elon Musk has accused Twitter of, quote, resisting and thwarting his right to information about fake accounts. In a letter to the social media company, Musk has stressed that the refusal marks a clear material breach to the takeover agreement. Twitter has stressed the company has and will continue to cooperatively share information. That is a direct quote, as it intends to close the merger at the agreed price. Meanwhile, Gene Munster, managing partner of uh, Loop Ventures, has stressed uh, how the deal has become so politicized. It's not about the number of bots that they have, ultimately. I don't think Elon is really concerned whether it's 5 or 6 or 8% bots. He says it's 20. I think that would be a difficult number to prove. But I think what's at stake here is some principle around frustration that Elon has with Twitter and how they've performed, uh, the type of information they've shared with him. They say they've been forthright. I think that that is what is really gnawing at this. And ultimately, Elon's influence, uh, how famous he is, is going to have a profound impact on the valuation of Twitter. And so you need to separate yourself from the fundamentals. The fundamentals are being negatively impacted by all this chatter. But I think at the end of the day, as investors, I think their vote of confidence is going to be diminishing here too. Not because of any bot numbers, but just because uh, now we've uh, politicalized this uh, between the left and the right. The Republican Attorney General of Texas has launched an investigation into Twitter bots. The probe will look at whether the social media giant has used deceptive or misleading practices to hide the true scale of spam accounts. Would-be Twitter CEO Elon Musk has a significant presence in the state which hosts a Tesla gigafactory. 
Shares in Didi Chuxing closed up almost 25% in New York after the Wall Street Journal reported Chinese regulators are wrapping up their probe into the ride-hailing company. The positive sentiment seeping into other Chinese tech stocks, the likes of Alibaba, JD.com trading higher in Hong Kong. Interesting that Meituan and Tencent are not mirroring those gains at this stage, but perhaps that's a reflection of where they currently sit on that regulatory journey. Apple has unveiled a slew of new hardware and software, including a fresh operating system and a new chip. At its worldwide developers conference, the tech giant also announced it will enter the buy now, pay later market with a new feature on Apple Pay. Steve Kovac filed the report. I'm here in Cupertino, California at Apple's headquarters for their annual WWDC developers event. This is their first in-person event since the pandemic began. And as always, this event focuses on software. So that means new updates coming this fall on iOS 16 for your iPhone, for your iPad, and other platforms like the Watch and Apple TV. But what really got people talking was this new buy now, pay later product that's built into Apple Wallet. This will let you buy stuff anywhere Apple Pay is accepted and pay off that item in four equal interest-free payments. Now, this is a direct competitor to popular services like Klarna and Affirm, and now Apple's dipping its toe in the fintech market as well. On top of that, a really fun feature coming to iMessage that lets you unsend an iMessage you already sent and even edit ones that you sent. So if you make a mistake, they got you back. Other than that, not a lot of hardware at these events typically, but we did get a new version of the MacBook Air. It's been completely redesigned, and it has Apple's new M2 chip. This is going to be the first computer to have the second version of this uh, M series chip that Apple is using to distance itself away from Intel. But we're still waiting for the final Mac computer, the Mac Pro, to move away from Intel and take on this M2 chip. And then again, all eyes are on the fall later this year when we're expecting to get a new iPhone running all this new software and potentially an augmented reality headset. For CNBC Business News, I'm Steve Kovac. And just a reminder, for more on Apple's latest round of announcements, you can go to cnbc.com for all the detail. Well, the rise of buy now, pay later is said to be a feature at Money 2020, which kicks off in Amsterdam today. Digital payments and cryptocurrencies are also expected to dominate. Let's have a look at how these cryptocurrencies are doing at the moment. Quick check in on the board here. Bitcoin is down over 6%. Ether uh, down uh, nearly 6%. Uh, Dogecoin off over 3%. Litecoin down nearly 5%. Bitcoin Cash off 4.45%. Karen is in Amsterdam at this event. Morning, Karen. Good to see you. I mean, how much of the decline in these cryptocurrencies is likely to throw a shadow over this uh, event. Jeff, I can tell you it's a very different money 2020 versus the one we were at last year. I mean, the event uh, actually finally got back up and running on the back of COVID in September, and there was a lot of euphoria. Don't forget, fintech was one of the fastest growing areas of the technology sector. We had an enormous amount of funding pouring into the uh, area, $131 billion in 2021, up 168%. And you can see there was enormous growth, too, for a lot of these companies that are hoping to come to market very quickly and maximize their success. We kept talking about new units 
unicorns, even decacorns in the space. But now, nine months later, this is a fully-fledged Money 2020, about 5,000-odd guests turning up, 300 speakers. And I've got to say, if you look at the speaker list, some of those young startups have sort of dropped off the list. The uh, big IPO hopes, you've got to say, have been pushed out into the long grass for now. One of the big issues has been the drop in valuations. We talk about a sell-off in technology. Well, no one's felt it more than fintech. I mean, some of these valuations are down 80%. And we're also talking about a private market where there's not a lot of transparency. Don't forget these companies have been out there raising a lot of cash, but how quickly they go back to raise more cash is the question and on what terms. So that's what we're watching for at this stage. I think what's also interesting is how we are also standing by for consolidation. Don't forget these valuations have made it very, very difficult to try and consolidate. We've had big companies. I mean, Visa did embark upon an acquisition last year, uh, close to $2 billion, roughly $2 billion. And that was a very high-priced acquisition. So you're going to say, at what cost does that come for those who have actually stepped into the space to pick up some of this valuable technology? Are we looking at a, a landscape now where there are more potential targets? And what will be the trigger where confidence is strong enough for a lot of companies to make those deals? The other backdrop here, there's still a lot of talk about growth. You mentioned buy now, pay later. That's still been a growth area. But regulation is coming very quickly to this space. Don't forget it's a model where you are lending out to people who may not be able to repay this debt down the track and with higher interest rates, uh, more credit provisioning by the banks, a more conservative approach. It does beg the question is just how strong this sector of the industry will be and whether we'll be looking at more credit casualties. So that is an area to watch out for. But of course, crypto, I mean, that is number one, isn't it? Just what sort of crypto is going to be folded into the payment system in future. And the other big one is Web3 or Web3.0. There's a lot of buzz about this from Silicon Valley and it's moved across to fintech world. How you manage to maximize payments in the metaverse, uh, very different payment system is being considered. So there is quite a lot to talk about here at Money 2020. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.